The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. And I didn't know if I could write a book because I'd written, you know, short stories and really galactically awful teenage poetry, but I'd never tried to write a book before. But I reckoned I could probably write maybe a scene and then another scene and then, oh man, I've got a chapter there. Greetings, scribes, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, sending you positivity, prolificness per usual during these strange days. This week, New York Times bestselling crime novelist Tana French took a break to talk with me about her early training as an actress, her definition of creativity, and how to write through the tough times. The author's written eight mystery novels and is considered a master of suspense and the modern psychological thriller. Her work's been compared to writers including James Elroy and Donna Tartt, and she's been called incandescent by Stephen King and absolutely mesmerizing by Gillian Flynn. Her novels have sold over 3 million copies and won numerous awards, including the Edgar and Barry Awards, the LA Times Book Prize for Best Mystery Thriller, and the Irish Book Award for Crime. Her latest bestseller, The Searcher, is her second standalone novel, and she was described by the Washington Post as the most important crime novelist to emerge in the past 10 years. Stay tuned for a clip from The Searcher audiobook at the break, excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio and read by Roger Clark. In this file, Tana and I discussed her galactically bad poetry, the archaeological dig that inspired In the Woods, her Edgar-winning 2007 debut, how she came to riff on the Western genre in her latest novel, and why writers need to fight off the struggle of isolation. Stay safe and stay sane out there. I'll see you on the other side. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files. I am thrilled today to be joined by a very special guest. I've got Tanner French joining us. And uh, man, you must be uh, busy right now. You're kind of on a, a virtual tour, is that right? Yeah, virtual tour, Zoom tour, where we all live our lives these days, Zoom. Yeah, we're Zooming and uh, <laughs> we're, we're, it's a pleasure to have you on and thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. So, so how are you uh, surviving these very bizarro times uh, we're experiencing? Oof. 
Well, I think writers probably had it easier than most because I already worked from home. It wasn't like a huge, big transition. You know what I mean? The, yeah. the main thing has been two kids during lockdown running around the whole time. That, <laughs> that took a little bit of getting used to, but still, you know, it's, it's got its good sides, definitely. Staying yeah. safe, keeping fingers crossed. For sure, like so many right now. And and uh, yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, we speak with so many writers just about kind of how they're dealing with the, the pandemic and, and their sanity and, and all that stuff. But, you know, <laughs> I do hear complaints about wanting to get out to a coffee shop and, and, and or get out to a, an indie bookshop and meet, meet your adoring fans. But um, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about um, writing and the writing life and this fantastic career that you've had. But I understand, you know, it kind of was a circuitous journey, like so many authors. Um, take us back a little bit yep. and just um, as we do dig into your, your kind of origin story as a you know, how you became this best-selling thriller writer and those early years of, you know, take us back to maybe when you were an actor or. <laughs> yeah, I got, I'm the only person who went into writing for the job security, right? Because, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. At least now, you know, if you have a two book contract, that's four years of job security right there, which is an actor, that's unheard of that's like <laughs> the dream you know you're lucky to have four months if you're an actor no I was in between two shows and I got a few weeks work on an archaeological dig which you know I've always been fascinated by archaeology and it's a more interesting way of paying the rent than a lot of them and I was uh, working on this dig that wasn't too far from a wood and I thought oh, that would be a great place for kids to play mm. and then I thought okay what if three kids ran in there and only one came out and he had no memory of what had happened to the other two. Like normal people would have stopped at a great place for kids to play, but a mystery writer, you're, you know, you're always looking for the potential mystery and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, what would that do to his head as he grew up? And what if he became a detective and a murder case brought him back to that wood? So I kind of, I scribbled it, the idea down on like the back of a phone bill and went off to do the next show <laughs> and forgot the whole thing. <laughs> but then I was, I was moving flat and I found the phone bill. And I went, oh, that idea. I really want to know what would happen. And it dawned on me that nobody was going to write it for me. If I wanted to know how that idea would pan out, I was going to have to actually do something about it myself. And I didn't know if I could write a book because I'd written you know, short stories and really galactically awful teenage poetry, but I'd never tried to write a book before. But I reckoned I could probably write maybe a scene and then another scene and then, oh man, I've got a chapter there. And when I realized that I was really serious about this is when I turned down a show because I wanted to focus on the book. And if you know any actors, they don't turn down work. They just don't. So that was the moment when I went, okay, I'm really taking this seriously. I really am going to give it everything and try and make it work. And I got yeah. very, very lucky. Well, since then, since uh, your debut novel in the woods, um, this uh, recent release is your eighth novel now. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm still going, wow, eight? How did that happen? That's pretty amazing. And um, yeah, quite quite a success since then. So tell us a little bit about kind of, um, you know, I want to dig into your process a little bit, but mm. tell us a little bit about the departure for this latest one, because I understand, you know, it is a standalone, um, much like the Witch Elm. And it's a little bit different for, for you, but but um, mm. 
but similar in ways. Tell us a little bit about the the process that went into, you know, what what inspired uh, the searcher. Yeah, it is. It, it is a bit different, and I kind of I wanted to try something different. I don't want to get caught in the trap, which is easy to fall into, of writing the same book over and over. And when I was bouncing around ideas for this one, I'd been reading a lot of westerns, and I'd been thinking. You know, those Western settings, they've got a lot of resonances with the West of Ireland. Like, it's harsh country, it demands toughness from anyone who wants to live there. And that Western sense of a place that's very distant from the centres of power, so that the people living there feel like the power brokers don't know or care about their lives. They've got to make and enforce their own rules. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, what about transposing some Western tropes to the West of Ireland, see if they work there? And... That involved, that kind of necessitated a very different kind of writing, because if you're taking a riff on a Western, these tend to be people who are focused much more on actions than on thoughts, feelings, whatever. And I've written a lot of books where they were first person and where the action, the core of the action was the main character's head inside the main character's head. Whereas this one, Cal, the narrator, he doesn't really think it matters that much what you think or feel. Those aren't the things that define you. What defines you is what you do what action you take in the face of difficult situations. So that kind of defined the book as being necessarily third person, because for him, the important things aren't his thoughts and feelings. Those are not quite irrelevant, but not top priority. So you need to take that step outside and you need to make it third person. But also one of the Western tropes I liked was the stranger in town. You know how he mm-hmm. strolls into the saloon and he's got a secret oh, yeah. or two and, and he's going to disrupt stuff. He's, he's going to, be a catalyst. Maybe he'll like shoot the corrupt sheriff and set the town to rights, or maybe he's going to get shot because the town closes ranks against him, or he's going to shoot the hero, cause devastation. Whatever way, though, (laughs) he's going to be someone who disrupts the accepted patterns and brings some hidden things to light. So he seemed like I, I wanted to play with that idea. But that also meant that my main character couldn't be Irish. Because Ireland is small, man, right? Even if he came from the opposite end of the country, there would be a connection to this tiny village. Like he would have been in training with someone who came from there or his mum would have worked with someone from there, something. And within an hour, the local sort of shopkeeper and information repository, she would have ferreted out that connection and used it to place him within the framework of the town. And I didn't want that. I wanted the proper outsider. And that meant he needed to be from another country. So for the first time, I'm writing an American narrator instead. So, yeah, it was a very different way of working on a book, very different kind of book. Yeah, it's interesting to say that because I know I had read that you um, had read some Larry McMurtry kind of early on that inspired you. And I think Lonesome Dove was like my dad's favorite book Mm -hmm. of his. Um, We had the the DVDs growing up. Um, He he made me watch those a lot. But, uh, <laughs> and, and those characters are amazing and uh yeah they're kind of as you put it like morally ambiguous um in a sense but you know i, I think you know I, I when i think of kind of the cinematic quality of rewriting um it makes sense that uh, you came from a an acting background and a, and a drama background mm. oh yeah and then i think of you know great films like akira kurosawa movies uh like uh, Yojimbo. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, I haven't seen it. I, yeah, that's that's on the list, but yeah. No, but I, I mean, I think, you know, um, Bruce Willis did a, did a kind of a, an American remake of it that was a West, you know, like a Western 
version of it, huh. but it's but they're all kind of they all kind of lean on the same uh, tropes as you put it, but but interesting nonetheless. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers: "Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow," a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan, and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of twelve books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. But very cool. And congrats on the successes um, and the early praise. I mean, you've got some really big fans. And of course, these blurbs are, are a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, you know, I know that you've, um, in some interview interviews, you've mentioned that you've had some some struggles with with uh, writing um, and your processes. So maybe talk a little bit about what what you're doing. I mean, I don't think it's so much struggles. It's just it's natural. Everybody's head is melted these days. You know, we're all using up all our bandwidth trying to just work out what the hell is going on and what we're supposed to be doing about it. Yeah. And I think that's it's just natural enough. Um, it's kind of hard to get enough clear space in your head to come up with a new idea. I mean, I got lucky. I handed in this book like two weeks before Ireland went. (laughs) So I was doing edits and copy edits and proofreads during lockdown rather than trying to come up with something from scratch. Mm. And I think it's harder to come up with something from scratch when your subconscious is basically just smoking wasteland here. So I might, I've got an idea. I'm bouncing it around, but I reckon it's likely to take a little longer and a little more clear space before I can turn it into a book. Mm-hmm. But you just kind of have to work around it like everybody else, find ways to work around it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and I've asked a lot of authors the same question, like how, how do you think it's going to affect your, your process? Um, or, you know, how can it not, this, uh, mm. this very strange time? You know, and I hear people saying, you know, oh, well, we'll look back on this time with some... some uh, nostalgia when it's all over but you know 
we're, we're in the new normal. And I think, you know, how can it not kind of bleed into our subconscious or our, our work, right? Well, I think that's going to be really interesting because I think this is going to take years for people to process enough to write about it in any coherent way. I mean, I'm sure there'll be instant pandemic books, people responding instantly with, with uh, some kinds of books, but I don't think it's possible for those to have the the detachment and the space to have processed any of what's going on. That's going to take I don't know, five years, maybe more. So I think it is going to bleed through, though, in ways because, like you said, there will be things that we'll look back on positively. There have been things that have been positives out of all this, you know, more more space to spend time with families, more space to do stuff like, you know, long bike rides around the neighborhood, baking things, making art. There's been space for that. But that's all been within this very strange um, dystopian framework. Mm -hmm. So the ways of filtering out, okay, what were the good sides of this? How did they fit within this framework? And how do I make sense of all of this on a psychological level? I think that's going to take quite a while for anybody to process enough to to put it into a book. Yeah. I think, you know what? People keep saying, are you going to write about this? I'm like, well, I don't even want to live through it. I'm going to wind <laughs> up writing like fluffy Regency romance if this goes on much longer. <laughs> well, one of your fans, Stephen King, uh, has called your work terrifying, amazing, uh, incandescent. Um, but it does it does kind of feel like we're all living in a Stephen King novel, and I've heard this positive. <laughs> this is all his fault. It is, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, well, reality, because nobody does that better than him, where reality seems to be one thing, and then it's just pulled askew. Everything is just that bit distorted, and you can't get back. And it might look like a normal day when you look out your window, but then you start seeing the indications that it's not, and you can't find your way back. So yeah, Stephen King is actually a pretty good comparison. Well, um, it's cool to see the New York Times, uh, of course, gushing about your latest. And <laughs> and they have a whole essential Tana French um, that I will wow. link to, which is, which wow. is great. If you want to go back, um, you can read a little bit about all of her previous work there. I'll link to that. Your homepage Thank there you. at com, and you're on Facebook. All those links will go in. Of course, I will link to the latest. Tell us a little bit about, I don't know. I mean, I think I think the big one right now for writers is just how to keep going, how to persevere through tough times, through lean times, whatever it may be. Because, you know, probably a lot of writers who don't have access right now, who aren't getting in front of audiences, who you know, are dealing with kind of uh, pandemic fatigue and I don't know, this, this, the, the issues with isolation that we're all feeling, uh, oh, yeah. what, you know, whether we, you're with your family or not, it's kind of unavoidable, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, what do you, what do you want to say? What, what advice do you want to offer to your fellow scribes on just how to, how to keep their chin up, you know? Oh man, I think it's there's two different elements. One is on on the writing level, and one is just on the isolation level. On the writing level, somebody asked me one time, you know, how do you not get pulled down? Because she said, you know, most of the writers I know get pulled down by the idea that, oh my God, what if it's not good enough? What if this is crap? What if, and I said, well, I mean, I'm going to write it anyway. 
So why am I, why would I waste energy worrying about whether it's crap? It might be, it's entirely possible that it is, but I'm still going to finish it and I'm still going to work on it. I'm still going to fix it. So it's, it feels like a waste of energy to focus on whether or not it's crap when that won't make any difference to my actions. So I guess that's the only useful thing I can offer on the writing through tough times front is, listen, you know you're going to do it. You know you're going to write that book anyway, because otherwise you wouldn't be here doing it. So cut yourself some slack and don't use the time worrying about whether it's crap. Just, you know, you're going to do it. Do it. Um, on the struggle and the isolation thing, I think one thing I've noticed during the pandemic is that people are really good at coming up with creative ways around things. I know a lot of actors and people in theatre companies, and now that's one that you literally cannot make work in the normal way during any form of lockdown or restrictions. You can't have people in a theatre. You can have a lot of people on an airplane, but apparently airplanes are magic and you can't have anybody in a theatre at all. So actors and production companies are finding ways to make it work. They're doing readings on Zoom. They're doing socially distanced things that are screened as drive-ins. They're doing, they're finding creative ways to make it work. And I think writers probably are doing very much the same thing. They're finding online writing groups, online reading groups, Zoom things that can act as a way to reconnect to each other in what is already can be a very solitary profession. And now you add this extra layer of solitude on top of it. It is extra tough. So I think some writers anyway have been finding different ways to work around this, really amazingly creative ways to work around this. For mm -hmm. me, you know, I'm, I'm in lockdown with my husband and two kids who I love, but there's a lot of not solitude. <laughs> solitude has not <laughs> been a, a challenge that I have had to overcome over the last while. <laughs> yeah you know I'm, i think a lot of i think that's going to resonate with a lot of writers um right now yeah so tell us a little bit about what's next and you know and i wanted to ask about dublin murders um and yeah. kind of like your involvement with some of the adaptations of your work um but uh right. yeah like uh, is there anything Anything in the pipeline with with um, any other adaptation stuff or or hopes for the future? Well, I don't know. I mean, the same company bought the rights to all six Dublin Murder Squad books at once, so yeah, they could do the next two. But you know, I mean, we're in the middle of all this. Who knows? I wasn't <laughs> right. really involved. I was initially going to be because I was under the impression that it was going to be an adaptation of the books, yeah. but it gradually became clear that actually what they wanted to do was a complete reimagination and i went okay i'm not going to be useful here the only mm. thing nobody wants the author there going excuse me that's not like that in the book <laughs> nobody, that's not anything useful so I went, okay i'm going to back right off and let you guys who are very high up professionals let you do your thing so i don't actually know whether it had very much in common with the books the first series but there were a load of amazing actors working on it you, know, you can't go too far wrong so I think it's probably better if they're going to do the next series. Again, if they're focusing on a reimagination, I, I don't think that I'm going to be particularly useful. I think I would be a pain in the backside rather than anything productive. So I'm going to do the same thing and go, you guys do what you do. I'll be over here doing what I can actually do usefully, which is writing the next book. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's wrap up with a fun one. Uh, if you could take any author from any era to uh, dinner, all expenses paid to your favorite spot in the world, who would you take? Where would you take them? Go. Oh, where? I don't know, but I'm going to be so the most boring answer in the universe. I'm going to go for Shakespeare because I want to know how this guy worked so fast. Yeah. It takes me two years to write one book. And he was just popping out these genius level plays every few weeks. Oh, yeah, you need another one for next Tuesday? Sure. Here, here's something that is full of lines so beautiful that in hundreds of years, they're still going to be blowing people's minds. Mm. I want to know if he thought that way in normal conversation if he was just firing at a level that uh, and a speed that the rest of us can't even picture or what how was how did this guy's mind do that and do it so fast that's what i'd love to do absolutely interesting interesting question there i think yeah as to whether or not he was one person because yeah the 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 prolif prolificness and and Oh man, and how it stands the test of time is pretty amazing. Well, thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to do this, Tanner French. Thank you so much. The Searcher is the latest. Of course, we'll link to all the places. And uh, yeah, uh, Tanner French skillfully builds suspense as the search reveals great turmoil beneath the village's bucolic facade. I hope I'm pronouncing all these words correctly. A country noir that finds tenderness in the troubled hearts of its recalcitrant characters. That's a book list review. Congrats on all the successes and we wish you the best of luck on your um, virtual tour. Is there anywhere else you want to point your fans? Uh, there's a Facebook page for Tana French. That's the main place for all the news and updates and everything else out there. Yeah. yeah. And thank well, you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, stay safe out there and stay prolific. And we appreciate you. <laughs> thank you. You stay safe too. Take care. <laughs> that was great. That was fun. When Cal comes out of the house, the rooks have got hold of something. Six of them are clustered on the back lawn, amid the long wet grass and the yellow flowered weeds jabbing and hopping. Whatever the thing is, it's on the small side and still moving. Cal sets down his garbage bag of wallpaper. He considers getting his hunting knife and putting the creature out of its suffering. But the rooks have been here a lot longer than he has. It would be pretty impertinent of him to waltz in and start interfering with their ways. Instead, he eases himself down to sit on the mossy step next to the trash bag. He likes the rooks. He read somewhere that they're smart as hell. They can get to know you, bring you presents even. For three months now, he's been trying to butter them up with scraps left on the big stump towards the bottom of the garden. They watch him trudge up and down through the grass, from the ivy-loaded oak where they have their colony, and as soon as he's a safe distance away, they swoop down to squabble and comment raucously over the scraps. But they keep a cynical eye on Cal, and if he tries to move closer, they're gone, back into the oak to jeer down at him and drop twigs on his head. Yesterday afternoon, he was in his living room, stripping away the mildewed wallpaper, and a sleek, mid-sized rook landed on the sill of the open window, yelled what was obviously an insult, and then flapped off, laughing. The thing on the lawn twists wildly, shaking the long grass. 
A big daddy rook jumps closer, aims one neat ferocious stab of his beak, and the thing goes still. Rabbit, maybe. Cal has seen them out there in the early mornings, nibbling and dashing in the dew. Their holes are somewhere in his backfield, down by the broad copse of hazels and rowans. Once his firearm license comes through, he's planning to see if he remembers what his grandpa taught him about skinning game, and if the mule-tempered broadband will deign to find him a recipe for rabbit stew. The rooks crowd in, pecking hard and bracing their feet to jerk out bites of flesh more of them zooming down from the tree to jostle in on the action. Cal watches them for a while, stretching out his legs and rolling one shoulder in circles. Working on the house is using muscles he'd forgotten he had. He finds new aches every morning, although some of that is likely from sleeping on a cheap mattress on the floor. Cal is too old and too big for that but there's no point in bringing good furniture into the dust and damp and mold. He'll buy that stuff once he has the house in shape, and once he figures out where you buy it, all that was Donna's department. Meanwhile, he doesn't mind the aches. They satisfy him. Along with the blisters and thickening calluses, they're solid, earned proof of what his life is now. It's headed into the long, cool September stretch of evening, but cloudy enough that there's no trace of a sunset. The sky, dappled in subtle gradations of gray, goes on forever. So do the fields, coated in shades of green by their different uses, divided up by sprawling hedges, dry stone walls, and the odd narrow back road. Away to the north, a line of low mountains rolls along the horizon. Cal's eyes are still getting used to looking this far, after all those years of city blocks. Landscape is one of the few things he knows of where the reality doesn't let you down. The west of Ireland looked beautiful on the internet. From right smack in the middle of it, it looks even better. The air is rich as fruitcake. Like you should do more with it than just breathe it. Bite off a big mouthful, maybe, or rub handfuls of it over your face. After a while, the rooks slow down, getting towards the end of their meal. Cal stands up and picks up the trash bag again. The rooks cock smart, instant glances at him, and when he starts down the garden, heave themselves into the air and flap their full bellies back to their tree. He hauls the bag down to a corner beside the creeper-covered, tumble-down stone shed, pausing along the way to check out the rook's dinner. Rabbit, all right. A young one, although barely recognizable now. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.